Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. It's finally October, the best month of the year. And before I get started on today's episode, I do have to make a correction. And this was pointed out to me by a wonderful listener who's always giving me feedback and liking all my stuff on social media, and that's Grace. So thank you, Grace. Um, Her daughter lives in Newport, and she said, you know, it was a little confusing. You gave out a link to the wrong house. So there is a Southgate house that's like an old church And then there's the Southgate house that I was talking about, which is now more commonly referred to as the Thompson house. Um, And like I was talking about, that's for the inventor of the Tommy gun. So if you want to check out what's going on at the Thompson house now um, and maybe book an event there or whatever, um, that website is www.thompsonhousenewport.com. Okay, so once again, thank you, Grace, for setting me straight, and here we go. Actually, one more thing before I get started. I wanted to give a shout-out to listener John Edwards. He sent me a really nice voice message. Uh, He also has a podcast, it sounds like, and he's also in real estate, so hey, John. Um, you said that you sent me an email. John, I never got an email from you. So send it again, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. I want to know more about your podcast. And you have an amazing voice. Um, I love your accent. So uh, please send me more information. And thank you for the voice message. Okay. Now, today um, we're doing listener stories. And these were sent in from Chris Powell. And uh, Chris used to live in Frankfurt, all right? And then he moved, he just told me recently, he moved to Erlanger. Erlanger? I've passed the sign so many times. Uh, I've never heard anyone say it out loud. I think it's Erlanger. Um, But he said it's much less haunted there. So (laughs) um, good to know. And so these stories today are going to take place in Frankfurt. Um, So I'm just going to read them exactly as he sent them in. And, uh, hi, Chris. (laughs) All right. So here we go. As we approach October and the Halloween season, most realtors will be asked about haunted houses. Do you have to disclose if it's haunted? Is this house haunted? Have you ever sold a haunted house? Do you have experience with haunted houses? Have you lived in a haunted house? These are all questions I've received from clients and customers over the years. Often, my answers are dependent upon the client, but are always truthful. For me, it's always a matter of how much of the truth a client can handle. Will they think I'm crazy, or will they enjoy the story? For as long as I can remember, I've been aware of the paranormal and had experiences in that area. I don't know if I'm just in tune with that sort of thing, gifted or cursed, or if it's simply a coincidence. Regardless, I've decided to write about three haunted houses that I've been witness to unexplained events. Two of the houses I lived in with my wife and son, and the third is one that I showed to a couple who was looking for a place to start a small farm. I realize there will be skeptics, and I welcome their attempts to explain these events, but I would like to remind them that it's easy to explain something when you were not a part of it.
House number one. My wife, son, and I were living in a 750-square-foot duplex in Frankfort, Kentucky, along with our dog and three cats. Needless to say, space was tight. We desperately wanted a house of our own, something with space to move around without tripping over each other. Often we would drive neighborhoods that we liked and dream shop. My wife and I worked for the Commonwealth of Kentucky and our salaries were not great. This was during the mortgage crisis of the late 2000s, a time when a low-income, first-time homebuyer had absolutely no chance of buying a house. It was during one of our dream shopping drives that we happened upon a neighborhood yard sale. We stopped and walked down the street looking at the items for sale and talking to the homeowners. Almost midway down the street sat a cute little ranch house that just seemed to draw us closer. We started talking to the owners and found out that they were selling the rest of the items they had in the house. They had moved some time ago and really wanted to sell the house, but with the mortgage crisis, decided to wait until the market was better. At some point during the conversation, owner financing was mentioned, and everyone figured it was worth some thought. Keep in mind, I was not a realtor at the time. After many conversations and several drafts of agreements, we owned a house, and the sellers were glad to be rid of it. Everything was recorded at the courthouse and nice and legal. Shortly after moving in, we noticed that things would go missing. Keys would not be on the key catch next to the door. Books and kitchen utensils would go missing. Doors would close on their own. Eventually, the items would resurface in odd places. Keys would be found in the fireplace, books in the attic, kitchen stuff in the crawl space. Annoying, but otherwise harmless events, we got used to it, often laughing at the ghosts in the house. We lived in the house for about 10 years. During that time, my wife would often say she never slept well in the house, I've always been a light sleeper and never really gave my wife's complaints much thought. One night, my wife and I were asleep in our bedroom when I woke to the sound of the closet door opening. As I looked at the closet door, a shadowy figure came out and approached the bed. It climbs in, or I guess I should say floated over the bed and floated over my wife. I started to raise up to try to get rid of this thing when it looks at me. The look paralyzed me, and all I could do was watch as it hovered over my wife making a whispery sound. The more I tried to move, the tighter the hold this thing had got. Finally, I started to pray as there was nothing else I could do. My prayers were frantic, but sincere. After about a minute, the shadow thing released us and went back to the closet. As I lay there in a cold sweat, all I could do was chalk it up to a nightmare, as my wife seemed to have slept through the entire event. The next morning, my wife told me she had a nightmare about a shadow thing coming out of the closet. I interrupted her telling of her nightmare and finished the story for her. We were in shock. Two people, regardless of how close they are to each other, could not possibly have the same nightmare. After that night, neither of us slept well in that house. 
The activity started getting worse after that night. It was as if the house was turning against us, especially my wife. We finally decided to move after my wife was robbed at gunpoint in our driveway. No, we don't attribute this to the paranormal, but it was the only violent crime in that neighborhood that anyone could remember. While living at the house, we had a neighbor that was a bit aloof and bitter with most people that lived or passed through the neighborhood. She was older and had been there for years. Most people just ignored her quirky ways and went on with life. I would speak to her and try to be friendly. My wife could not stand her. About a year after we moved, I got a call from a lady that worked for our old cranky neighbor. She told me the neighbor was in the hospital and wanted me, another lady that worked for her, and the caller to come to the hospital. The three of us were not to tell anyone that she was ill, and we were asked to help a niece handle the estate when she passed. The niece was out of state and would need someone to assist. We agreed, and a short time later, the old grouchy lady passed. Amongst her belongings, we found occult items and instructions for rituals. To this day, we still wonder if a good part of our paranormal activity was the cause of the witch next door. I personally think she was part of the problem, but not all the problem. Or she could have been the start of the problem. Our next house was even worse. House number two. Before I can go into an accurate telling of the haunting at house number two, I need to give you a bit of history of the area where it's located. House number two is near a section of Frankfurt that was once known as the Craw, or the Bottom, and in more recent times, Crawfish Bottom. Needless to say, this area has a very eventful, colorful, and in some cases, tragic history. To really understand the area better, I suggest you read this article. And guys, I'll link to the article in the show notes of this episode. Along with the reputation and history of the Craw, the area was also used as a cemetery for some of the lower socioeconomic classes before the creation of the Frankfurt Cemetery in the 1840s. When the current transportation cabinet building was constructed after the Craw was demolished, the discovery of at least 250 bodies were found with only a few of them being identified. This area is directly across from house number two, and it's believed that there are many more graves, many of which were slaves, and some say Native Americans, in the area underneath these homes and buildings. House number two was built in 1894 on the site of an older home which was raised. The new house was built over the basement of the original house, and the basement is more like a cellar with access to a crawl space. My wife and I had always had an attraction to old houses. In fact, some of our first dates were to go visit old homes that had been abandoned and dream of how we could fix them up. Once we decided to look for a new home, I enlisted my supervisor to help as she was a part-time real estate agent. She was also aware of our income status and knew what we could afford. We looked at several homes in Frankfurt. My wife seemed to be drawn to a huge pink house on a very busy corner of Frankfurt's downtown. 
I resisted even looking at it because it was pink and being on the corner offered no privacy in the backyard. I finally relented and decided to take a look. The house was just over 6,400 square feet and only had two bedrooms. Granted, the bedrooms were huge and they were connected. However, there was more space than we could have dreamed of and all the original woodwork was still intact. I figured what the hell and we made an offer and bought the house. My wife was attending law school at the time and we thought one of the downstairs rooms could make a perfect law office sometime in the future. Once we moved in, it wasn't long before I started to notice what appeared to be a man in a gray suit walking up and down the stairs. After a while longer, there was a woman that would appear with him. Neither of them gave off any negative vibes. They seemed to be more curious than anything else. By the way, I am an empathic medium, something I discovered in house number one. I had always been aware of this, but never had a name for it until the goings-on at house number one started, and I investigated it a bit more. I did a bit of research and found our visitor was the original owner of the house. Eventually, I was able to communicate with them to some degree and found they were happy that someone had the house that did not want to change it. They also seemed protective to a point, although I felt they kept things hidden from me as well. One day, shortly after moving in, we came home to find the house smelled of sulfur. We searched everywhere and could not find the source. Finally, I decided to check the basement and cellar. The partial basement gave access to the crawl space behind an old wooden wall that was once the back wall for a shower. It was behind that wall that I discovered a stone-walled tunnel. The tunnel itself was just big enough for a very thin person to fit. I did not try to crawl inside, as I am not a very thin person, and it was creepy as hell. Covering the tunnel with some foam wallboard helped with the smell, but it never completely went away. Shortly after the sulfur smell died down, we began to hear someone walking on the second floor of the house. The footsteps came from my son's room. The footsteps could be heard around 11 p.m. every night. They could be heard from the living and dining rooms downstairs, the bedroom next to my son's room, and from the hallway outside of my son's room. We asked him if he heard them, and he said, yes, something walks around my room at the same time every night. After spending some time looking around my son's room, we found the numbers 666 built into the metal grate of the fireplace. Both bedrooms, the dining room, and the living room had gas fireplaces. These were original to the house. As you can imagine with gas fireplaces built in the 1890s, we did not use them. In total, we were in the house just over three years. Every day of that time, the activity increased in some way. Over time, the house began to take a toll on all of us. Our son became withdrawn and would stay in his room rather than associate with the family other than mealtimes. However, he was a teenager and we simply thought it to be a teen phase. 
He has since told me about how absolutely miserable he was at that house. I'm sure that he had several experiences there that he never told us about. One of the things he has shared happened in the basement. We heard a noise like someone or something was moving around. I didn't think much about it as there was always something moving around or making a noise in that house. My son did feel the need to find the source and started looking around. On his search, he went into the basement to see if the noise came from there. To get into the basement, you must open a trap door on the back porch. The door was a heavy wooden thing that if closed would be very difficult to open from the inside. His thinking was that an animal had gotten trapped in the basement somehow and made the noise in an attempt to get out. He soon came out of the basement and yelled for me to bring a gun. Someone was inside the basement. I went in the basement with him and did not see anything and was going to chalk it up to light reflecting from the street or somewhere in the house and that it had just seemed like someone was down there. He adamantly told me no. He had seen the shape of a person sticking his head from around the wall near the stone tunnel and there was no way the guy could have gotten out as the only way out would have been to pass my son on the way to the door. My wife was going through law school at Northern Kentucky University's Chase School of Law and working full-time for the state of Frankfurt. She made the commute from Frankfurt to Northern Kentucky four to five days per week after work. She would arrive back home around 10.30 p.m. and spend a little time unwinding before bed. Between the travel and the study time, she had very little free time and the stress level was high. Midway through the time we lived in the house, she became ill. She started becoming nauseous, and what food she could keep down came out in the bathroom shortly after she ate it. She became weak and was losing weight rapidly. She was unable to sleep more than a few minutes at a time. It got to the point that she would sleep on the floor on a twin mattress to keep from waking me up. She missed over a month of work at one point. Luckily, if you can call it luck, She was out of school for the summer. We made several trips to the local emergency room where they would tell us she was dehydrated, they would give her fluids, and send her home. They found nothing else wrong with her. She would feel better for a few hours, but would soon be ill again. Finally, she was sent to a gastroenterologist who ordered more testing and found nothing. She had all the symptoms of IBS, but there was nothing in the test result to show that was the case. The test would show that she was dehydrated, but otherwise she was fine. Eventually, her coworkers told a doctor about her condition. She worked for the Department of Disability Determinations, where they had doctors on staff. The doctor reached out, and after hearing what was going on, told us to go to Baptist Hospital in Lexington and that he would obtain and forward her test results to a friend of his that worked there. He thought his friend could help. The doctor in Lexington agreed with the doctors in Frankfurt as to IBS symptoms, but no sign of the condition. Fortunately, the Lexington doctor treated for IBS even though the tests were negative, This worked, and my wife felt much better physically, but always seemed to be distressed when she was in the house and felt well the entire time we lived there. The day we moved is the day she went back to normal. After moving, I've looked back at photos taken of my wife while we lived in house number two. 
Her smile isn't quite right in those pictures, and her eyes have no pupils, just black. I was affected as well. My anxiety levels were off the charts, and I had thoughts of suicide and of doing harm to others. Thankfully, I could gain control of myself when I was away from the house. To do this was like a battle within my head. There was the rational me and the irrational me, and as long as I was not at the house, rational me would win. Irrational me always seemed to have a chance of winning when I was at the house. I fought battle after battle with the house, physical, mental, and paranormal. For instance, the old-fashioned box gutters began to leak just after the roof was replaced. I would think of jumping off buildings just to get out of the hell we were living in while I was in the house. I argued with the house and all the non-human entities that have resided there. I was often scratched while sleeping or in the shower. I never slept all night while living there, and I still don't. Items would go missing or disappear completely for days or weeks at a time. I found that if I would just say out loud, bring the remote or whatever was missing back, the item would show up someplace that it should never be. Like the remote control for the living room television would be on the toilet tank in the upstairs bathroom. One day I came to the house for lunch. I placed my keys on the catch beside the door when I arrived and proceeded to the kitchen for a sandwich. While eating, I received a call from work and I needed to return from lunch early. I went to the door and reached for my keys. They were gone. I knew what happened and I got mad. I walked into the living room and shouted, This shit is not funny. Bring me my goddamn keys back now. The words had barely escaped my mouth when the keys fell onto the coffee table. Once my wife graduated from law school and passed the bar exam, she worked for a short while in a legal position with the state in another county. She was then offered a position with a law firm in Cincinnati, which she accepted. Thank God for this job, as it was the catalyst to our moving from the house. We put the house on the market in hopes for a quick sale in order to make the move. Despite the house being on one of the busiest corners in downtown Frankfurt and in the heart of new development, the house did not sell. My wife took the job and commuted until we could get rid of that damn house. I began to up my game for getting rid of it. I would pray and sage the house daily, sometimes multiple times per day. We started to remodel the bedrooms to add a third bedroom and enclose the laundry area to give it a more polished look in the foyer the only place we could put a washer and dryer. Still, there was no interest in the house, and the activity increased dramatically. One night, around 2.30 a.m., I decided to go downstairs to get a drink from the kitchen. I used the back stairs that lead to the downstairs bathroom and the dining room. As I got to the landing halfway down, something that was shaped like a very large human came through the door of the dining room and looked up at me. This thing, which I believed to have been a demon, had the shape of the old Mr. Clean or the Michelin Man. No lights were on in the house, and this thing was darker than the surrounding darkness. It had two small glowing red dots for eyes. I have never felt more empty, cold, and alone as that thing made me feel. 
He spoke in a raspy, hissing tone and told me that we couldn't win and that I should submit to his legion. I have since learned that legion is the name of a demon or many demons. I began to pray and asked God to help me. I told the thing that I would fight against him and would never submit. After about two minutes of this, the demon simply shook his head and walked back into the dining room. I did not proceed to the kitchen. The next day, I went to the local Catholic church and filled a large spray bottle with holy water. I took the water back to the house and sprayed down the entire house while praying to rid the house of its hold on our family. Over the next week, St. Michael medallions were placed through the house, and I asked the archangel to help in our battle. We also continued our work on the bedroom and laundry area. We had taken the house off the market while the remodeling was going on. One day, while spraying down the house and praying, I received a call from a local realtor. He and an investor wanted to purchase the house. He made an offer and agreed to let us stay in the house until we found a place in northern Kentucky. His offer was low, but we could make it work. Given that I'm a realtor, one would think that getting the most out of the sale of a house for the seller would be a priority, even when the realtor is the seller. And that is the case in every sale I have made, apart from this one. And I have never felt better about a low sale price in my life. It was coming to an end. We soon found our current home in Erlanger, Kentucky, and have enjoyed it ever since. There's a lot more to this story that I haven't told here than I've told here, most of which is in an effort to be brief and to give you a general idea of the situation. Some things were omitted purposefully, and I will never speak of them to anyone other than my family who suffered the experience. House number three. While living in house number two, I obtained my real estate license and began working part-time as a realtor in the Frankfurt area. I had some buyer clients that were looking for a small farm to live on and to keep and train horses. As with many buyers, their budget was very limited and the selection of properties that fell inside their budget was limited. A small farm was listed in a remote part of Anderson County that was within their budget and we decided to take a look. I booked the showing for 5.30 in the evening, as that was the time the client was available. After setting the appointment, the listing agent called and said he couldn't get an electronic lockbox to work, but a combination lock was at the property. The agent also mentioned that I should call him after the showing, as he would be curious as to what I thought about the house and property. While agents most always want feedback, his request seemed a bit premature. I hadn't even seen the property yet. I always try to arrive at a showing a few minutes before a buyer client in order to open up the house and familiarize myself with the property. I arrived around 5.15 p.m. I proceeded to open the door and turn on lights as I walked through. The house hadn't been lived in for some time and it had a very odd feel about it. There was a door from the living room into the kitchen and another door from the kitchen to the dining room. I turned on lights and left doors open as I went. After the doors were open and the first floor lights were on, I walked back out to my car to get the property disclosures and other paperwork for the buyer. When I stepped off the front porch, all the doors slammed shut and the lights inside the house went off. 
At this point, I am a bit freaked out, but I lived in a haunted house at the time, and a few lights and doors were not going to keep me from showing my very determined buyer this house. I went back inside and repeated the process of opening doors and turning on lights. I then went outside to wait for my clients. Again, once I stepped off the porch and doors shut, the doors shut and the lights went off. And before I could try again, my clients arrived. I told them what happened before they got there. They just laughed as if I was joking with them. The three of us went inside, turning on lights as we went through. Each light went out as we left the room, and the doors would shut behind us. We could also hear something walking on the second floor. Still not deterred, my clients wanted to see more of the house. They were do-it-yourselfers and very determined. They wanted to see the basement in order to see if there were foundation or water issues. I really wanted to just say no, or you can go down there yourself, but my client wanted to see the basement and I was not going to let a client roam around alone in a house I'm showing, so downstairs we went. Believe it or not, there were no issues with the foundation or basement walls, but while looking around, I noticed the electrical panel, which I pointed out to the clients. All the inner workings of the panel box had been ripped out, and there was not another box in the basement. It was amazing how three people could leave a basement and house so quickly. We did walk around the house, more so to calm down a bit than to see any more of it, but we noticed the electric meter base did not have a meter. There was no power to the house, yet the lights worked somehow. Once I was on my way home from this showing, I called the listing agent. He answered the phone by saying, it's creepy as hell out there, isn't it? I told him, yes, it is definitely creepy, to put it mildly, and I told him what we experienced. He told me that I was the only person to show the house since it was listed, but he experienced a lot of the same things. He nor the owner had figured out how the lights were working, and the owner, who inherited the property, would not tell him much about the history of the place. Throughout my life, I've experienced the paranormal. My first experience was at the age of five. Over time, I've found that I can communicate with at least some paranormal entities. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it is something that I must live with. I've learned or come to believe that this is something my family has contended with for generations. I believe that there are truly blessed places on this earth, as there are truly evil places, and I have been in both. Writing about house number two has been a very difficult process, much more so than I thought it would be. I would write a few paragraphs and have to stop. Negativity attracts negativity, and I did not want to bring anything like that on my family or myself again. In fact, I would not write about house number two in my current house. All that section was written at the library, as I don't want anything like that in my current house, where the only activity is the old man in the basement that built the bar down there. He's pretty peaceful, and I prefer to keep it that way. All right, folks, that is the end of Chris's haunted house experiences. Uh, Hopefully that was spooky enough for you. 
If you have a story similar or any type of paranormal experience that's happened in the state of Kentucky, send me an email, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. I've got some other episodes coming up pretty soon. Um, In the third week of October, I'm going down to Bowling Green uh, to do the Murder Mansion tour and uh, talk with the author of the, um, I think it's called The Cemetery Road Murders. Do I have that backwards? I don't know. I'm going to Bowling Green. I'm doing a haunted tour. I'm going to tell you all about it afterwards. I'm also staying in an Airbnb that's like this very remote um, plantation-looking farmhouse. Uh, I have the whole place to myself. It's going to be a little spooky, so maybe I'll have something to report back about that as well. All right. Uh, Thank you, as always, for listening. If you want to buy me a coffee, go to the link in the show notes, scroll down to the bottom, and uh, send me a little tip. All right, thank you all. Take care, and until next time. Thank you.